If you have a Bible, I do want to encourage you to turn with me to the Old Testament letter, or book, story of a man named Job, not to be confused with Job. For many years, I thought it was Job, but I was just like, I don't want to read that letter. Does that mean I have to get a job? Lame pastor joke. This, is, this has to be one of the most intense 42 chapters that we have in Scripture. It's one of the most misunderstood sections of Scripture that we have, but it's also one of the most profound and powerful stories that we have. Because every single one of us, in some shape, way, or form, we've all asked the questions, why, God, did you allow this? We all experience it at some level where we all say, life is not fair. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My kids always remind my wife and I how unfair things are, especially when it comes to dessert. Their piece is bigger than mine. That's not fair. And it's so fun as a parent to always go, listen, life isn't fair. Unless it happens to me. When we look at this story of Job, I mean, we look at this and there's, there's so many things that cause massive questions in our hearts and our minds. And I know there are going to be questions that if you aren't familiar with this story, you're going to go, what is this? And I started thinking about this as we're wrapping up the series on worship because we've been asking a question, what is God worthy of? He is worthy of everything. But I oftentimes wonder, speaking about myself, if my worship is contingent upon his blessings. What will I do if God were to take everything away from me? What would I do if all of a sudden, like, my loved ones died tragically? Lost my job, house, health. What would I do? That's a hard question. It's a question we don't want to answer because at the end of the day, God, I'm for you. I love you. I fear you. I don't understand why you would allow that to happen if you were to allow that to happen. It wouldn't be fair. What did I do to deserve this? This is the way we think because we live in this culture and it's not just new to us today in our modern thinking. This is the way humanity has always thought of fairness as some level of karma. Like if I were to be punished for something, it's because I did something bad. But that's not how life always operates. And so this morning in this story... We're going to do a quick flyover all 42 chapters. You're like, oh my goodness, we aren't getting out of here to the fireworks. Hey, that's fine. You got nothing else to do anyways. We'll have our own fireworks show right in here. There's eight characters. We see God and Satan. We see Job and his four friends and then his wife. And it's a really bizarre scene because it's like, first we see Job, we hear about who Job is. He's a successful man. He's loaded. He's one of the best in the region. He's a righteous guy. He's a man full of integrity. He fears the Lord. He's blameless. He does what is right in the eyes of God. 
And then in the story, we get the scene as if now we are in heaven, like kind of like behind the curtain. And we look at this scene in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and it's a really bizarre little scene. It almost feels like God is having an angelic staff meeting. Because in this scene, he says that now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. It's kind of like the angels like came and were like, here's what I did, here's what I saw. And Satan, and actually the Hebrew says the Satan, is like the accuser also came among them. Now we don't know for sure if that means like he was part of the staff meeting or he just crashed it. We don't truly know. But the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Okay, here's a fun little dialogue. But now this is where questions start to arise. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now it's fascinating because it almost gets this feel that Satan is walking around the earth looking for people to devour, which is exactly right. Peter describes Satan as an, our adversary. He's like a lion prowling around looking to devour people. Satan is one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And for some reason, in this story, for some reason, God goes, have you considered Job? And I'm like, God, please never do that to me. Like, can I, like, maybe I won't be as good. But it's like, why does he do that? And Satan replies, does Job fear God for no reason? Oh, now we're starting to get a glimpse as to what's happening. Satan is an accuser. He hates God and he hates those who follow God. He hates God's glory. And it's God's glory that's ultimately on the line here. So he's accusing Job of false worship. He's accusing Job of basically believing in the prosperity gospel. Does he fear God for no reason? Like, he only worships you. He only puts his faith in you. He only obeys you because of what you do for him. You made him wealthy. You made him prominent. You gave him children. You gave him a wife. That's why he worships you. You've conditioned him to love you. He's not a free person. You say we created a free will. He's not free. If you take away the hedge, have you ever wondered where a hedge of protection comes from? It's right here. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. If you take it all, he will curse you. He will deny you. He will walk away from you. He will no longer worship you. What is this about? I mean, it's fascinating. One of the things that I have to stress, and I know we don't think too much about because it is truly beyond our intellect, is that there is so much to this world than what meets the eye. There's a physical world and then there's a spiritual world. Scriptures talk about this 
all the time. What we see is kind of what's in front of us, right? Like we even have to be reminded, like Paul did in Ephesians chapter 6, that like the, power, like the battle that you face, the issues you face, aren't against flesh and blood. It's against the powers and principalities in the air. It's almost like there's a whole other spiritual realm behind the curtain that you don't see. And obviously, because this story comes up the way it is, our decisions to worship God based upon who he is, our faith, claiming that he is worthy of our worship no matter what, must have significant influence in the spiritual realm. It must. Like in Luke chapter 15, when Jesus gives the parable about the the one lost sheep, and there's 99 that are there, and the coin that's been found, and then you got the prodigal son, and the one who is dead comes home, and Jesus said that all of heaven rejoices when one is found. Like, he's not just being metaphorical. He's not just saying, it's kind of like, no, he's like saying literally, when people come home and they profess in Jesus, all of heaven, the angels erupt. Our faith matters. Our faith influences the spiritual realm. Luke chapter 10, after Jesus sent the disciples out on a little short-term mission trip, they came back and gave a report about all that was happening. They were casting out demons and healing the sick and telling people the good news of the kingdom of God. And because of the success of their short-term mission trip, Jesus said as a result, I see Satan falling like lightning. It's fascinating we downplay that because we don't also want that kind of much influence. But did you know that in the New Testament, Paul said through the power of the Holy Spirit that we will judge angels? That's weird. Just, just call it for what it is. But that all of heaven is peering in, watching what's going to happen. This is a big deal. Because Satan is basically saying that people aren't free to choose to worship God because God has preconditioned them. He has set them up in such a way that they have to worship him because of all of the blessings. And God's like, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Because I I know he will choose to worship me. God's glory is on the line. God's glory is what's at stake here. God's glory is our greatest good. And God knows that. God's glory is so much more important than our own comfort. And I know that still leaves questions. And that's okay. Those those questions are meant to be tensions, not to be resolved, but tensions that we manage. Tensions that lead us to faith and worship of who God is. Satan thinks he's trapping God. Not only is he accusing Job of false worship, but he's also accusing God that he's not worthy of humanity's love. If you took away all the blessings, they would see you as less than. Paul, or not Paul, Peter, even taught the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, many degrees, many severities, different levels. Won't be easy, but consider it pure joy. Why? So that 
the tested genuineness of your faith. Faith leads to worship. Your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by a fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So even though we don't fully understand this scene, we get a clear glimpse that God is sovereign and that even Satan has to get permission. God is over all. I mean, this is not just an Old Testament thing. Somehow, some way, this dynamic still almost works in the New Testament because when Jesus, before he went to the cross, he was, he was talking to Peter. He said, Peter, listen, Satan has asked me for him to be able to sift you like wheat. And I'm like, Jesus, why don't you just say, no. But he says, after you've fallen and gone back up, encourage your brothers. I mean, Peter understood how Satan works, but there was also something that God wanted to do in the midst of that. And it's ultimately for us to connect and to see who he is. I read verse 12 of chapter 1, and I always ask the question, what? Because this is so hard for me to understand. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And from verses 13 through 19, we see a great tragedy, one after another. He loses everything, including his children. The only thing that Job has left is his health and his wife. I don't know about you. I don't know if I could sing the song, Yes, I Will, at that moment. I would be going, God, this is not fair. What did I do to deserve this? You're not good. Like, I would legitimately wrestle with that. And, and we know Job did too. But we got to get ourselves to a place where, like Job in verse 20, comes around and immediately in this moment, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It makes me think of the Matt Redman song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. And I remember when I was in um, college and even post-college being part of a worship band, like I remember playing that song and college students being really, really excited about that song. And for the longest time, I didn't pay attention to the lyrics because I had a really cool guitar riff that I would play because I was awesome like that. And so, like, I never paid attention to the rip. But when we got to the bridge, like, they were going crazy. Like, you know, they're like, Bleh. you know, they'll give and take away. And all of a sudden, I, like, stopped and I started thinking about what we're actually singing. And I'm like, are they really that excited about that? Because, like, if it was just the Lord gives and he gives and he gives, I'm like, I'd be really excited. But, like, I found myself not being able to actually sing that song because I, like, I couldn't get myself resolved to that place. The Lord gives and takes away, and yet my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. 
But the Lord in his grace gave me the encouragement saying, you, you, you got the heart of faith that you want that to be true. When you go through tragedy, come on, every single one of us faces pain and suffering and tragedy and unexpected loss. What do we do? This has been the biggest question since sin has entered the world. Why? Well, we would expect the book of Job to answer that question because right away in chapter 1, you see a great tragedy and you expect now for the next 41 chapters, God answering why. There is no answer. There is no explanation. But what we do see is something far better. We get a revelation of who God is. And if we thought this was enough, chapter 2 comes. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also there, and he presented himself from the Lord. Same conversation, where you come from. So he's like, I've been around here and there, you know. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Note that. There was nothing that Job did to deserve this. To which we all go, I don't like that. You incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Fine, you can take away his blessings. Got it. But if you take away his health, that will do it. He will then curse you. He will blaspheme and turn his back on you. And shockingly, shockingly, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Just don't take his life. I read that, I go, whoa, 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 whoa. God, why don't you just say he's had enough? Haven't we proven that he's a man of integrity, that he would worship me even if we take away the blessings? God is sovereign. God knows what he's doing. And I know when we say that, that it isn't always sufficient for us to the pain we feel. Then his wife in verse 9 comes, and you got to understand, like, we can't, like, be mad at her. She just lost all her children, right? Like, do you still hold fast your integrity, Job? But she's really being used of Satan to try to get him to do the very thing that Satan would accuse, is accusing Job of doing. Curse God and die. Just be done with it. Turn your back on him. He's done you no good anyways. Why are you still holding your turkey? Don't you deserve it? Curse God and die. Just move on. And Job speaks so gently you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He's not calling her foolish. Shall we receive the, the statement of you speak as one of the foolish women is speaking about like common wisdom of the day, what they would say in this situation. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil or harm? Like what good is it? Like how, how faithful am I if I only receive only the good things from God and if I don't submit even underneath the bad things from God? 
How can he say the bad things? Well, if God's good, could God do bad? No, but God is sovereign. He's over all things, and he's allowing Satan to do that because God is also sovereign. His purposes can't be thwarted, and he will turn it out for good. And then Job has great friends who basically say, Job, what did you do? Job's like, nothing. I'm innocent. They're like, liar. You are not. What sin did you do? Come on, confess it. I did nothing. I promise you I'm not perfect, but I'm innocent. I did nothing to deserve it. Liar, we know God is just, and we know this is how it happens. He doesn't just let things happen. You must have sinned. Come on, Job, what is it? I did nothing. But in this process, you can see the hurt of Job and the despair in Job's heart as he's processing, like he wants to still worship God, but yet he's starting to accuse God, right? He's not blaspheming. He's not cursing God. He's starting to accuse God, saying, this is you, God. Why, why, why? Why did this all happen? And I understand this is hard. But the fundamental reason for Job's suffering was to silence the blasphemous accusations of Satan and to prove that humanity could and would worship God even though we could lose everything. This is, my friends, listen, this is the battle in the heavenlies. This is the battle that's happening. It's for the hearts of men and women. If we only worship God for what he would give us, then we won't be worshiping God for who he is, only for what he could do for us. God is nothing less than our puppet. Job struggled mightily. Make no mistake. Yes, we can look at this and go, this is not fair. In fact, Job is saying, God, I'm having a hard time believing you're just because of this. God, I'm having a hard time believing that you're fair because of this. But friends, we got to look at something. What does the gospel teach us about fairness? Jesus, life wasn't fair to him. The pure spotless lamb, God's son, perfect and holy and all things. He came and he experienced the cross, the greatest act of unfairness ever. But life isn't fair. Life should be fair. We get that confused because we go, well, God is fair, so therefore everything should be fair. But there's sin in this world and God is redeeming the world. Jesus suffered terribly and nobody is exempt from tragedy not even god nobody's exempt from this god wasn't even exempt in fact jesus the gospel doesn't offer any sort of immunity to unfairness but rather the gospel provides us a way through it good friday the cross to easter what does God say in defense to all of this? When Job is saying, God, how could you? Where are you? Why this? Why that? All these things, even Job to the point of despair. I wish I was never born. Job 13, one of my favorite verses. 
In Job 13, 15, he says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. It's like even though there's all of this stuff, I'm still going to hope with him. And I love the process, what he says next. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. That's a bold brother right there. But we do the same thing. Because we all operate, do we not, out of the assumption that we know what's just and we know what is fair. But friends, we have no clue what's going to happen five minutes from now. We don't even know a microfraction of a microfraction of what's all happening in the physical world, let alone the spiritual world. We have a very, very minuscule perspective of everything, and yet we have the audacity to come to God and say, you're not fair. And God's like, you don't understand. You don't see everything. And we don't like hearing that these answers to our questions are beyond our understanding because when Job pleads his case before God, he's like, come on, God, answer me. Also, in chapter 38 comes and God shows up in the whirlwind and he says, Job, prepare yourself like a man. Those are the words I never want to hear from God. <laughs> like, I'd be like, whoo! <laughs> and you would expect at this moment answers to the Why? But what we get instead are 64 questions back. Job, who do you think you are? And God's not being vicious. He's helping Job get perspective. Job, were you there when I laid the foundations down? Job, were you there when I built the constellations and the stars? Job, were you there when all of this was created? Job, do you know what's happening in the unseen world? Job, do you know how to exact justice in every single circumstance, at every single moment, with every single variable ever? Job, were you there? <laughs> Job, do you know where the storms come from? Do you know when they'll show up? We still don't. These are real questions. Job, were you there when the doe gave birth to the fawn? Job, do you know about the reproduction habits of goats? That's in the book of Job. Job, do you know why ostriches are so ugly? Job 38, 13 for reference. Job, do you know why there's such a thing called grape nuts? They're not grape or nuts. Figure that out. Joke. That's not there. That, that one is not in Job. Well, what is God doing with all of these questions? He's getting Job to go, I don't know. My world is very personal. What I'm feeling is real. But God's like, listen, if you don't understand all of this, and if you were to worship me for my sovereignty, Job, like, you got to understand, I know all of the causes and all of these things. Don't tell me how to run the moral universe, let alone don't tell me about what's fair, Job. And Job ends up repenting and confessing that he was speaking about things too wonderful for him to know. But how many times, though, do we still get stuck on the why? Just 
tell me why. God, why did this happen? What are you doing? And I believe to my heart that God knows that the answer to that question will do nothing to alleviate the pain and the heartache and the burden we feel in that. If you break your leg and you get an x-ray, does the knowledge of the x-ray help you with the pain? In fact, I don't even think we'd be able to understand when God would say, here's why. God's like, I'm not going to give you the explanations of all these things, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn you and turn your heart and your eyes to me so you can see my promises and see me at my word and put your faith in me. I remember a season in our life where we experienced tragedy. My wife and her mom and her family experienced it way more than I did when my wife lost her sister at a young age, in 20, young 20s, in a fire. Unexpected. Just as it seemed like her life was turning around and things were moving in the right, right, like right direction and even praying for her. And then you get a call at three in the morning that there's a fire and that she's probably dead. That was hard. It's like you're in a snow globe. You know what I'm talking about? Like those little snow globes. And it's like, you just, it's all shooken up and it's just all over the place. Why, God? This seems to have no purpose. And then well-meaning people are trying to say, well, God has a plan. As if God, it's like, we don't know. And in that process, I remember one of the things that my wife shared with me that just stuck with me to this day. She went out on this place in Winona, Minnesota, just up overlooking the Mississippi River Valley, just praying and wrestling with God. And she's like, God, I, don't, I want to worship you, but I don't even know how. I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know where to pick up the pieces. And she felt in her heart like the Holy Spirit just whispered to her, don't worship me for what I can do for you. Worship me for who I am. Job 38 through 41, God doesn't give any explanations. What does God do? He explodes on the scene revealing who he is. Knowledge is passive. It does nothing. Suffering is personal and it's intimate. And God's response to human suffering is to send Jesus Christ as an incarnation, took on flesh, took on pain, took on suffering, knows what it's like to be abandoned. He took the wounds for us. He didn't give us an explanation. He gave us himself because suffering is personal and it's intimate, Jesus took it on to experience it personally and intimately. That's why I love Job 19.25, where Job can resound saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. I have no clue what Job was thinking at that moment, but we who read it today on this side of the cross know we're talking about Jesus. I know that my Redeemer lives. Why did Jesus come? He came to take our punishment in our place, 
so that we would never be separated from God. Yes, we will be wounded. And yes, we're going to experience moments where it feels unfair. Yes, he was wounded for me so we could be, so I could be eternally healed. And you're going to feel abandoned sometimes. But he was abandoned for you so that you could be eternally embraced. This means that his mercy and his love is ever present with us. And we never have to worry about what he is doing in our life. Because he stands by our side. He gave us the Holy Spirit as a seal, as the comforter inside. We may not know exactly what God is doing in our pain. But the cross shows me clearly what my suffering cannot mean. My suffering cannot mean God has forsaken me. It cannot mean that God has abandoned me. It cannot mean God has lost control. The cross reminds me of God's love, which I can never be separated from. God's love reminds me clearly that God is in control. He doesn't give us an explanation, but he gives us himself. And that was enough for Job. And that should be enough for us. Because when you see the beauty of Christ, friends, I'm telling you, you stop asking the why. And you begin to trust the who. And I have no idea where this quote originated, but it's just something that's been etched in my heart. And it's helped me and it's anchored me. When you can't see his hand, trust his heart. When you don't know why, and you feel like God is silent, you don't know where, he's by found, where, to, where to be found. The cross reminds us of his heart. There is so much grace in our pain and suffering. I love that we got 42 chapters because a lot of times, in our Christian world, we're too embarrassed to admit the suffering. We're too embarrassed to admit that we're questioning God. Because we don't want people to think that there's something wrong with our faith. But God gave us a book of a man who was excellent. Who went through the whole process. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And yet I will bring my questions to him. I can't think of a better way to end this service than to celebrate communion. Because the question of worship, is God worthy of our worship when all is taken away? When the Lord gives and when the Lord takes, will our heart still choose to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Some of you right now are asking why questions. Some of you right now might be in a little bit of a microcosm of a story like Job. God might not give you the answer to why. But you don't need it. Because what you need is Jesus. This is our opportunity to be reminded how Jesus took on suffering, abandonment, unfairness, 
and justice intimately for us with his broken body and his shed blood. Before we take the elements together, I just want to give you space and time to wrestle with the Lord and ask the question, God, show me my heart. Do I worship you for what you give? Or do I worship you for who you are? Lord, would you speak to our hearts?